Hey, friendly reminder, this podcast is not for kids or people who have a stick up their ass. Friday, 5.58 p.m. I'm sleeping with my best friend's husband. I think my uncle killed someone in I his think suicide. I am I a sugar baby. Mom addicted to Adderall. I think I my sister is my actually my uncle's kid. My What's your secret? Welcome back to another week of Beyond the Secret. Before we get into this week's episode, I just want to put a disclaimer out there that this episode has a lot of very sensitive subject matter in regards to infant loss. So please be mindful before continuing to listen. October is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. And each year, in the United States, approximately 10 to 15% of all pregnancies will result in a miscarriage. 24,000 pregnancies will result in a stillborn. And in 2017, there were about 3,600 sudden, unexpected infant deaths in the United States. This has to be one of the most difficult experiences any person will go through in their life. But I hope they know that they are not alone. This is just one of those stories. This week's episode, Her Name is Sloan, An Infant Loss Story. Tell me about when you found out you were pregnant. I remember that I was still um, breastfeeding my one-year-old, and I wasn't having a cycle at that point. So I didn't really think that I could get pregnant because both of my daughters took a year and a half for me to even be able to get pregnant with them. So I wasn't really thinking that it would happen and um, we weren't using any protections. It was one night we were watching a movie and um, I remember just crying on one of the scenes. I just remember thinking, oh my God, I'm pregnant (laughs) because I don't get emotional over movies very easy. And so I went to the store and got a test and sure enough, it came out positive and I was pregnant and I was breastfeeding my one-year-old and just my whole world came crashing down because in my heart, I felt that we were done trying, like we weren't going to have any more kids. I didn't really want any more. And so I was terrified and It wasn't like the happy feeling that I had with my other two. How far along were you when you finally took the pregnancy test? I want to say I was about six weeks along. And I thought that because I wasn't really paying attention or wasn't like trying to get pregnant, that maybe I would have been further along. But I really wasn't. I was only like about six weeks long. I was terrified because I had a one-year-old. And that's that's a lot. Like, and number one, already like, you know, having two kids and not even planning on having a third is a lot. But also like a year after having a baby, like your hormones and everything are still out of whack. Yeah, completely. How does your husband react to you telling him you're pregnant? He comes from a large family, and basically I could have 10 million babies and he would be happy. He was excited. He was happy about it. And had you guys talked before about only having the two kids? Yeah, I told him that after my two girls that I was done. And he was okay with that. Like, he's just like, you're the one that has to 
be pregnant and carry them. So whatever number is good for you is good for me, but I wouldn't be sad if we had more. So you find out you're pregnant and does anything seem weird? Do you have any complications or anything different? Yeah, so in the beginning, everything was fine. Um, When I found out I was pregnant, I was, you know, obviously very upset. I'm sure that I prayed every day that I would miscarry just naturally. And, you know, that, that was very hard for me because every day I was stressed. We weren't really in the financial place to even have a third child. So I had those thoughts that I think back on now that I feel like maybe I did this to myself. But every day I prayed that I would miscarry and I came up on 11 weeks pregnant and I started bleeding out of nowhere. And so I thought, oh my gosh, I'm, I think I'm going to miscarry because in my two previous pregnancies, I had never bled or really had any kind of complications. I went to the emergency room like completely sure that they were going to tell me that I was going to miscarry. Can I ask you something? Yeah. In that moment, how are you feeling? Relief. I was so relieved because I thought that I was just going to miscarry and it would be fine. So you get to the hospital, and what do the doctors say? They said, your baby is fine. He's perfectly happy, and you have um, what's called a subchorionic hemorrhage, which is basically where part of the placenta tears away from the wall of your uterus. So you have like a little bubble of blood, basically, and you bleed. So she was completely fine, and I was so upset. I feel awful saying that, but I was very upset that she was fine. I don't think that you have to or that you – I don't know. I don't think that you should feel awful for for saying that. I think that that's true. That's how you were feeling, and if it's – Pregnancy is a very difficult thing on every single side of it. It's really difficult and it takes a toll on people's emotions to try and get pregnant. And it takes a toll on people's emotions staying pregnant. It gets a toll on people's emotions when they find out they're pregnant and they weren't ready for it. Like pregnancy is a huge thing. It's the biggest thing I would say that any human will ever do in their life. Mhm. So the doctor sends you home and basically I was just told to, you know, take it easy and usually these things are no big deal and they resolve on their own and you stop bleeding. Like basically they absorb into the uterine wall and she wasn't concerned at all. So we just took it easy but I was bleeding basically my entire pregnancy up until two weeks or so before I gave birth to her. So I had been in and out of the hospital for them to monitor my bleeding because it was excessive at some points and I could have needed a transfusion Um, Luckily, I didn't ever need one, but I had many hospital stays, and with my two kids, it was awful because I, like, I didn't have the luxury of having my husband stay at home and help me, and I had to do what I could do, still being told that I needed to be on bed rest, which really isn't feasible for you know, being a stay-at-home mom with a one-year-old and a two-year-old. Do you feel like during that time, 
you were I feel like the best way I can say it is just losing your shit. Yeah. Oh yeah, completely. I was, I was losing my shit. I was, I mean, this just added another level of me wanting this pregnancy to end. Honestly, it was just the icing on the cake. I was over it. I couldn't deal with it anymore. I remember my last hospital stay overnight, I was around 22 weeks pregnant. And it was a scary moment for me because I was super close to getting a transfusion. So they had me stay overnight. And I remember asking the nurse if I could have an abortion because I was terrified of losing my life and leaving my children without a mom. Can I just tell you honestly that it wasn't until you were saying that, that thought never even went into my mind. Like, I don't know how I wasn't thinking of that. Like all of this is stressful and stuff. And I, I I guess I just, I never thought about what happens if, these complications turn into something that takes you away from the two kids that you already have. Yeah. And the fact that I was told that these things weren't really a big deal, it would go away on its own. And even at one point I had went to a bigger hospital in the city that was more like equipped to deal with, just higher risk patients. And so they wanted to do a 3D ultrasound to check on my hemorrhage. And at that point, I was told that it was gone. And lo and behold, I start bleeding again, maybe a few days later. I was going through just this roller coaster of emotion throughout my entire pregnancy. Do you think that you had any sort of either postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety from your one-year-old daughter? I don't really think I did because my postpartum experience with her was absolutely incredible. Like I felt an even stronger bond with her than I did with my first because with my first, I couldn't breastfeed her. So when I was able to breastfeed my second, it just created such an intense bond. And I was extremely happy. And just, I loved it. And that came to an abrupt stop when I had to stop breastfeeding for my pregnancy with my third baby. When all of this is going on, how are you feeling towards your husband? Well, that's a good question. I felt bad because I knew how much he wanted another baby, and I was clear with my frustrations to him. I didn't keep anything hidden. We don't really have the kind of relationship where... I feel like I can't communicate my feelings to him. I let it be known how I feel. And he's very open and listens to me and makes me feel not judged. And so he knew my feelings. He knew how upset I was. But he, you know, he was happy. And he was trying to understand what kind of pain I was in and how terrified I was because he personally wasn't going through it. I don't think he really understood the gravity of the situation. Is there a reason why during all of this, like when you first found out and stuff that you didn't get an abortion? Yeah, I'd never really considered it until it came to the point of 
me feeling like I was going to die. So here's the thing. It's not that I didn't want my baby. It was just that I didn't want the stress of a baby. I didn't want to feel like I couldn't financially provide for my baby. And I just didn't want to be in that kind of mess. Mm. Does that make sense? No, totally. I mean, who's to say what your mindset would have been going into this pregnancy if it had come up a year or two years later? Oh, yeah, definitely. So you said that you stopped bleeding about two weeks before you delivered. And do you know why you stopped bleeding? They said that my subchorionic hemorrhage had gone away. Okay. And at what point do you finally start to go into labor? So it was on June 17th. I was 23 weeks and four days along. It started in the morning. I So I guess I should go back and say that that hospital visit a week before that, they had monitored me and ran tests to see if I had any infections or anything, just to make sure I was in good shape and everything was okay. Um, After going home from the hospital for that visit, I was told strict bed rest. The only thing I could get up to do was go to the bathroom. So for about a week, I was on strict bed rest. I literally did everything like they asked me to. And I started having what I thought were Braxton Hicks contractions starting in the early morning. And it's hard because with my first two pregnancies, I did not go into labor on my own. I was induced with both of them. So I didn't really know what it felt like to go into labor on your own. I knew what contractions felt like, but this was different because I had never gone into labor on my own. And so my mom was planning on coming down to my place in the morning. And so I was just waiting for her and seeing how I felt at that point. Like, I didn't really think at that point that I was in labor, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I called my mom and told her, and she recommended that I call my doctor. My regular doctor happened to be out of town and she did not tell me that she was going out of town. And so I was dealing with an on-call doctor and he told me that he recommended that I go in and get tested to see if maybe I have a urinary tract infection that can usually cause like contractions. When I got there, I went to labor and delivery and I told them that the on-call doctor recommended that I come in. So they hooked me up to the monitors to see what was going on. And they put this like belly band on you to check for contractions. And the nurses saw that I was having contractions. I didn't think that I was really in labor that day. So in the moment, you're not really that scared about anything that's going on? No, I just thought it was another false alarm, basically. Mm -hmm. I just thought that maybe my uterus was irritated from the bleeding and I was just having like little, you know, contractions, not that the contractions were doing anything. You can contract without you know, actually going into labor and changes happening. Mm -hmm. I asked her if she would check my cervix to see if those contractions were causing any changes down there. She said she wouldn't check my cervix because she didn't want to irritate it any further. You know, I understood that I was pissed because I was like, well, then what do you, like, how do you know what my contractions are doing if you aren't going to check what's going on? So 
a little time goes by and the nurse is supposed to talk to the doctor on call and tell him that I'm having contractions and what he wants to do. And so she comes back and um, she tells me that he wants them to run tests to see if I have any infections or anything. And so I told her that's fine, but I know I don't because I was just tested like a week ago. And I know I'm not dehydrated, so that can't be the reason for my contractions. But I said, go ahead, you guys can test. And I was still contracting at this point, except that they were starting to get painful. The nurse comes back and I asked her if she can check my cervix again, even though I know she said no the first time. I kept asking her because I started to worry that the contractions were doing something. And so she said no, and then I asked her, well, then can I get an ultrasound to see if, you know, what's going on, if any changes are being made by the contraction? And she said that she would ask the doctor, but he probably wouldn't, you know, allow me to have one. Is there a reason why, I mean, an ultrasound's not really that big of a deal, right? Right. I was not treated like a patient that day. I don't know if they were too busy with other people, but I just felt like they just wanted me gone. They weren't taking me seriously. Do you think that that could have been, do you think the reason that they were treating you like that was because they had saw that you had been in a lot before? Like, do you think on their end they were thinking like, oh, this is a, a woman who comes in at every single thing that happens? Oh, probably. I didn't even think about that. But, you know, this whole time I was thinking, can't they see my chart? Like, can't they see that I've been in here, like, a ton of times? Like, why aren't they taking this seriously? But I didn't even think about it the way that you put it, that it was just another oh, she's fine, she can go home type of thing. Because I'll be honest with you, if if ever I found myself pregnant, I am the type of person that would be in there every single week. And, <laughs> you know, I think that they, I would be someone that they'd be like, hey, this guy comes in here all the time. He's just a hypochondriac. He's just freaking himself out. Yeah. No, I totally didn't think about it like that. The only difference is, is, the other times before I wasn't contracting, mm. you know, and baby was always fine. And so when she told me I was contracting, I was like, okay, so this is a little different than just my usual bleeding problem because my bleeding was fine at that point. I was still bleeding, but it wasn't as much as all the other times before. Right. So she came back and she said that my test we're all fine, which I knew they were going to be. Um, she said that the doctor could offer me some morphine and some fenugrin for the nausea from the morphine. And I had asked her, me and my mom had asked her about, I think it's called tubertaline, and it's a me- medication they give you to help stop the labor. Mm-hmm. And she said that I was Like, I wasn't far along enough to get that. So I asked her, like, what the morphine was for, and she said that the doctor said that it would help stop the contractions. I've never heard that before, but I was like, okay, just give it to me. And she said it should take about 20 minutes to kick in. And I really didn't feel any different. Like, that morphine didn't work at all. Like, I was still feeling the pain. I asked her, like, does it take longer for some people for this to kick in? Because I'm still, like, I'm still in pain. I can still feel these contractions. And she's like, it should take about 20 minutes. And so I just laid there and waited and nothing changed. And she discharged me knowing that I told her that nothing had changed and I was still having those contractions. The only thing it did cause was like, it made me be a little loopy, but it wasn't taking away the pain. 
you left the hospital while still having contractions? Yep, she discharged me. I was only there maybe an hour and a half. Um, and I didn't see the doctor that visit at all. It was just communication between them. And so she brought me my papers and discharged me and told me, you know, to just relax and go home and the contraction should stop. So my mom and I left the hospital and we went to her house so that I could lay down and, you know, wait for the contractions to slow down. I think maybe I was laying in her bed for like two hours. They were getting stronger and stronger, the contractions, and they were getting closer together and it was just so painful. Like I could, I could hardly just like keep still. That's how painful they were. I was trying to relax, but I couldn't. And I kept going up, getting up to go to the bathroom. Looking back on it now, I realized that I've heard before that if you go into natural labor, that when it's time to push, you feel like you need to use the restroom. Mm -hmm. And so when I look back now, I realized that that I was close to giving birth. At 23 weeks, no one assumes they're going into active labor, you know? Yeah, no, completely. And because, like I said before, because I had two previous pregnancies where I never went into natural labor, I didn't know what it was like. So at that point, I, I still did not think that I was about to give birth because you know, if the nurse is saying I'm okay, if the doctor is saying I'm okay, then I'm okay. At that point, it was like, I think maybe an hour and a half before I called the hospital again to tell them that um, the contractions were getting stronger and closer together and, you know, what I should do. And the nurse that I had seen that day, I actually talked to her. She said, I don't know what to tell you. I'm not going to tell you to come in, but you should call the doctor on call. And so I called the doctor on call. He wasn't readily available, so I had to leave a message. So I left a message with him explaining that I was just in there. My contractions were not slowing down. They were more painful and what I should do. And so I waited like maybe 10 minutes after that call and I went to the restroom one last time and I had like a gush of blood and I told my mom I got my mom and I was like we need to go I'm not waiting for him to call back to tell me what to do I think we need to go by the way I never even heard back from that doctor ever even though I left him a message I never ever heard back from him and I didn't even end up back in the same hospital. So there was just no follow-up? No, ever. So I told my mom, and I was like, you know, waddling to the car because clearly at that point my baby had dropped probably into the birth canal. And so it was just me and my mom and my sister was taking care of my daughter so they didn't have to come, thankfully, because that car ride was like the most traumatic experience of my life. Um, I was in so much pain and I was just like yelling at my mom to just like hurry up and drive and I wanted her to get to the hospital as quick as possible. And she was going as fast as she could, but, you know, she was doing what she could, but I was freaking out. And she knew at that point that I was about to give birth. I don't know what came over me, but like all of a sudden, I just had this like intense pain and like I just naturally pulled down my underwear and I screamed like I've never screamed in my life. 
it just came out of me and I gave birth to my daughter in the car on the way to the hospital. It was out of my control and my body just, it was ready. It just pushed her out. In that moment, was she crying or? I didn't. So I didn't look at her. I just automatically assumed that she wasn't alive. And I like, I regret it, but I, I didn't look down. Like, I just pushed her out and I just sat there. Like, my mom was driving and we actually just went to the nearest hospital. And um, I never looked at her. But I assumed that she was already dead because I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear anything and I wouldn't look down and I just kept telling my mom over and over again, she's too small, she's too small. Like she's too little, she can't come now. And she just pulled up to the emergency. And my mom had called after that happened and told them to have people out there because I just gave birth to my baby in the car. So when we pulled up, there were people waiting and they just whisked her away. And then they took me. And I found out later that the reason I couldn't hear her is because she was born still in her sack. Like, she was still in the placenta. Like, my entire placenta came out. It's called end-call birth, when you birth the entire placenta. So she was still in there, and she was alive. Um, they life-flighted her to a hospital 40 minutes away that could that is better equipped to deal with babies that tiny so you're at one hospital she's aravac to another hospital and yeah how long until you get to be with her um it wasn't until they had to like mandatorily I don't even know if that's a word but it was mandatory that they kept me at least 24 hours to make sure that I was okay during that time what is going through your head honestly after I gave birth to her I was in shock and that shock did not wear off I don't know, I want to say maybe ever. I still feel like my life is a blur. My husband came right away. I just remember just looking at him with wide eyes and I could not say anything. When you finally get to the other hospital where your baby's at, what do they tell you? She was as fine as a micro preemie could be. You know, she obviously wasn't breathing on her own and doing stuff on her own. All the machines were doing it for her, but she didn't have any severe enough complications at this point. And... I know you said that you were in shock, but when you're finally, you know, with her and get to see her, where are you at mentally? I was so scared because she 
was so little. She was only one pound, nine ounces. And it was just really hard to like, when I think about that time, I feel like I was just trying to find the words. In my mind, I had already felt like she died because I was so sure she died when I gave birth to her. Mm-hmm. So it was really hard for me to connect with her when she was in the, the incubator. Yes. So, like, it was hard for me to connect with her while she was in it because I couldn't touch her. Um, I could only just look at her and see, like, she was covered by tons and tons of attachments and tubes, and it was just hard. It was hard seeing her like that. It was almost like watching myself in a movie. And I don't think I had much hope that she would survive. Because they say, really, babies shouldn't survive that young. Like, it's not really a common thing. So, I had two days with her. We were able to bring my oldest daughter in to see her. But she could only see her in the incubator and, you know, she was too really little. She was really too little at that point to really know what was going on. Um, But she was able to see her sister. Did you name her? We did. Her name is Sloan. And so... For two days, she stays alive, and then... She was pretty much stable. The main thing they worry about with microfamies is, like, brain bleeds. They're very common. She had minimal brain bleeds. They weren't really concerning. They can recover from the minimal ones, but... On the third day when we went to go see her, so we showed up, um, we asked the nurse how she was doing like usual, and at that point we knew something was wrong because she said, the doctor would like to talk to you, and so we just waited for him, and he took took us to a conference room, and that's where he told us basically overnight her brain progress beyond anything that is fixable and that if she were to survive she would be brain dead her entire life at the slim chance she did survive basically it was our choice that she wouldn't have much of a life even if she did survive So we decided to take her off of life support. And her third day, we, you know, they set us up into a room of our own and they wheeled her in and they said we could hold her for as long as we wanted. And they um, took her off of life support, and we just held her as she passed. And she took two hours to fully pass. Can I ask you something? Yeah, go ahead. And I don't think it's 
the question that you probably think that I might be asking at this time, but in moments like this, when you are telling this story, because I'm sure it's, I'm not, I'm not sure, I know. I know it's not an easy story to tell. What is it that you would like to hear from me? Because what I want to say is, I'm so sorry, but that doesn't seem right, if that makes sense. Yeah. Honestly, it's, I want to hear how awful it was. I always hear from people, you know, that they are sorry and I appreciate it. But I think to myself, you just do not know until you're in that situation how fucking awful it is. Like, just to hold your baby as it's dying. And we decided not to have our daughters there. I think for obvious reasons, traumatic experience. I don't really know if we made the right choice. I still wonder if I made the right choice to this day. I do have some thoughts that I had explained to the nurse at one point that I felt like an awful person because my whole pregnancy, I wished her away. And she said, that's completely normal. Now that she's here, I bet you would give anything for her to still be here. And honestly, none of that shit matters. None of the financial shit, none of the stressful stuff, none of it matters. I love her so much. And I can't believe that I ever wished her away. She touched my life more than any human being on this earth and just her short time on this earth with me. Do you ever talk to her? I used to, not so much more these days. Um, I go through periods of her not being at the forefront of my mind. And I think it's really just a coping mechanism. But, you know, the first year of my life is absolute hell. I've always said to people that if I didn't have my other two daughters, I probably would have taken my own life. Living life without your child is just like, I still feel invisible, like I'm not seen. And I feel like, how is everyone else living life and moving on and I'm just stuck in this moment? I remember on the car ride home when we finally left her. I remember just looking at all the cars on the freeway and thinking, how are they living life when mine is, my world is just crashing down? What did those next few weeks and months look like for you? They were life-changing for me. I was never one to speak up about how I felt about things or how I wanted certain things done and after losing her 
I was very firm about what I wanted according to how she was buried and nothing fancy, just a little service and had some music and just that was it. Can I ask, and you don't have to answer this, but what kind of effect did this have on your marriage? In the beginning, I felt that it made us stronger. Um, But as time has gone on, because of my husband dealing with his own grief with his mother, I felt like that overshadowed our daughter's loss and um, things have been tough not easy to navigate a marriage in general but to navigate a marriage with grief is just hard and I feel like I'm so consumed with my own feelings and my pain and my hurt and he is too that we can often forget about each other and why we married each other. And I just feel like I'm trying to be the best parent I can while also grieving, but it's hard. It's just hard. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. A lot of times I feel like a failure, but it's definitely been rocky. Um, I'd say maybe the first six months after losing her. I felt like we were stronger together, but it's different as time goes on, you know, especially with unresolved trauma and pain. And I have a hard time trusting myself and my body now. And it's difficult. I go back to the car ride and I can't help but just wonder the impact that that car ride had on you. And I imagine there's got to be PTSD there from that experience. Yeah, I'm sure there is. I haven't really like sought professional help since everything, but I'm sure if I did that, I would probably have a PTSD diagnosis. And I am not a therapist, but I am an observer. And one of the things that I would be curious to know is if we look at you and your husband and we look at the way that you both have grieved through this is probably very different. And I feel like for you, it will always take you longer to get to the point where he is like he, I think, I don't know that for him, he'll always be a little bit further down the road than you are because of the fact that you went through that. Like you had that car ride experience like you are the one you gave birth and does that make sense yeah no if I'm being completely honest I have often felt like he also did not trust me and how I was feeling that day and I don't think he fully believed that I was in labor I think just like you said that the hospital thought that, you know, it was just another hospital visit. And so I don't think that he took it very seriously that day and he wasn't with me in it, you know. You know, he has no clue about how traumatic it was. You just can't know unless you've been there. And I think too, it's, it's important to kind of remember that, you know, for a lot of men, we don't experience pregnancy. We experience it from our perspective, but we have no idea 
what it's like to feel a baby kicking on the inside. And there's a saying that says, like, you know, a woman becomes a mom the second she gets pregnant and a man becomes a dad the second he holds his baby or something like that. Mm -hmm. Don't don't quote me. But um, (laughs) it's a it's definitely a different. Like, I know what you're saying. It's definitely a different bond. And and that makes me think that, you know, for your husband, it's it's such a different grieving process than what you went through because it's... He, yeah, like, I knew her for that 23 weeks. She was in my body. I felt her, and he held her, you know, for those two hours for the first time. Do you think that you need to get some professional help with this? Sometimes I think I do, and sometimes I feel like I've got it on my own, that I'm not as bad off as I can be. I hesitate on wanting to open up that part of me to someone that could diagnose me with things that I honestly don't want to know about. But yeah, I've thought about it and I also felt like maybe I can just do it on my own. So now, today, you have two beautiful girls. I've seen them on Instagram. They are the cutest girls ever. They look like they literally have the funniest personalities ever (laughs) they do especially my oldest they are the light of my life and I tell them about their sister all the time and I have a box with just all the stuff that was with her in the hospital and there was like a, a bereavement team that came after she passed and they were able to give me some information and they actually dressed her up and took pictures of her that they sent me and um, they made little molds of her hands and her feet and they put those in the box for me. And so I I also have her, um, so my urn is actually a necklace, like it's a heart urn and I have that in the box too. My girls ask to look in the box once in a while and I tell them about their sister and I haven't forgotten about her and she's always on my mind and I'm still stuck in that two hours with her. I know I'm doing life and two years have gone by, but it really doesn't feel like it. I have gone back and forth a lot on what to do with this portion of the story because originally I didn't want to include it on this episode because I don't want it to take away from her story. But the more that I thought about it, I realized that this this part of it is her story and I want other women to hear this part because I do believe that things could have been different. I think I have a lot of just anger about how I was handled during all of that. I've tried to pursue it legally for obvious reasons because I don't want other women to have to go through what I went through. And so I have a lot of anger that the hospital hasn't really apologized to me for what they did. They tried to play it off like I was some crazy grieving mother when I left a review on their page um, after they wouldn't talk to me. Now, I am not an expert on much of anything, but especially not on this. 
So I reached out to speak with someone who is because I had a few questions that I wanted answered. Just so everyone knows, how long have you been a labor and delivery nurse? Over five years. Okay. And you got to listen to the episode. What are your thoughts on what happened? So I think for the most part, a lot of the things that were offered to her uh, and the tests and stuff that were done, I'd say is pretty straightforward. You know, the medications that were offered, the morphine and Phenergan is pretty routine. The testing that they wanted to redo, even though she had just had it done a week ago, I think is pretty routine just because so much can change in a week. Mm-hmm. I would say that the part that I disagree with is that they discharged her home, even though she was still contracting. What about the, was it her cervix? Checking her cervix. Yeah, that's the other part that I disagree with. I think that, you know, I've worked at several different places and everywhere I've worked is a little bit different in how they go about preterm labor. And if a woman presents in preterm labor, some physicians or some hospitals won't allow the nurse to check the patient's cervix, but someone needed to because the way that you could determine whether she's actually in labor or not is to determine if her cervix is changing. If you don't know what her cervix is, you can't, I mean, she could have been eight centimeters and no one would have known. Mm. So whether if they checked her cervix or did a speculum exam or the doctor came in and checked her cervix, that needed to be done before they sent her home. Is it common that a woman coming in with you know, contractions or what she feels are contractions. And then they even proved that they were contractions to not see a doctor at all during that visit. So a lot of time during when women come into triage, it's usually just the nurse. So it's not necessarily abnormal for the doctor not to come in, Okay. depending on what those hospital policy and procedures are. Like I said, if, you know, the, if the nurses aren't allowed to check a woman that's preterm, then a physician or a resident or someone should have come in and done that. But a lot of times, you know, a woman can come into triage and be checked to see if they're in labor and be admitted and get into a labor and delivery room before they even see a physician. And that's what I think is just like, I don't know. I just think in, and I don't know, like I don't know anything about the medical world, but it just seems like they needed to cross a lot of things off their list before saying, Hey, just go home and rest. Right. You know, she'd come in and complain to this and they did their testing. Nothing came up and they actually gave her morphine and Phenergan and her contraction stopped and she was fine. That's one thing. But she said that she was still contracting and they still sent her home. And that is something they left undone because they never got to the bottom of why she was contracting. You know, was it, did she have an infection? Was she bleeding? Did she, was she in labor? Like there's so many things that could have caused her to contract. And if they're not getting to the bottom of the reason, then obviously she's going to keep contracting. Which, you know, sometimes women can come in and have like some cramping and or even have contractions that are actually pretty consistent and they don't change their cervix at all. That's one scenario. But you don't know that unless you check her cervix. In the interview, I had said to her, you know, I'm curious I'm curious to know your thoughts on this, not necessarily for you personally, but if you can understand where I was saying, like, because she had been in a lot, do you think that these nurses, because it wasn't her regular doctor and it wasn't the regular, you know, nurses that she was normally seeing, do you think that they thought, okay, this woman is just like overdramatic or, you know, she's, a frequent flyer because she's scared of every little thing that's happening during pregnancy? Uh, I think that that does happen sometimes. You know, we do see women that come in regularly that are, you know, just tired of being pregnant or every little thing that comes up, they feel like they need to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. But a huge part of being a nurse is understanding a patient's history. And, you know, her history was pretty significant. And that all plays a very important factor of every visit that she does come in. So it's asking those questions of, you know, have you had any complications with your pregnancy? And then that's where that patient would say, you know, I've had this, the hemorrhage and, you know, everything that's led up to that point. 
And all of that's very important to relate to the doctor, understanding that the doctor that the nurse is speaking to very likely may not be her specific doctor. So it's just painting that full picture so that nothing does get missed. How often, how often is it that women will find themselves bleeding throughout their pregnancy? Uh, I wouldn't say it's too common. Uh, I'd say, you know, towards the end of the pregnancy, as the cervix starts changing, uh, they can have some splotting or if they've been checked recently, the cervix is very vascular. So uh, it can bleed. But in preterm labor or the early, I wouldn't say it's very common at all. What were your thoughts in regards to the fact that she never once heard back from that on-call doctor? That's crazy to me. Like, I just Someone should have called her back. Because, like she said, like, she didn't even end up going to that same hospital. So no one, nobody that she had been talking to, nobody who had seen her earlier that day knew that she came in because... She ended up going into labor in the car, and they just went to the closest hospital they could. Right. Obviously, OB labor and delivery is a 24-7 job. So if that specific doctor is off, there's always one person in the group that's on call that covers whatever doctors. Mm -hmm. So that every single OB is covered 24-7. So a lot of them have, like, answering services that patients can call into and ask questions, you know, unsure if they should go to the hospital or not, or if it's something that can be, you know, a question that can be answered over the phone to avoid going to the hospital. Mm -hmm. Someone should have called her back in a somewhat timely manner. What is it that you would suggest to women who are pregnant, who could find themselves in a similar situation like this? Like, especially that I'm just so upset that they had her leave the hospital, like what can women do to speak up for themselves? You know what I mean? Cause I think in, in a hospital setting, I am someone like, I'm just going to listen to whatever they say and I'm just going to shut up. And I think a lot of us feel like that because we don't feel as educated as the people who are taking care of us. Right. And I think a lot of times, you know, nurses or physicians get into that uh, mindset that, you know, we do this every day and we understand what we're saying. We have to make sure that our patients understand knowing that they don't work in a hospital and they don't work in the specialty that we work in. So first and foremost, I say that if you don't understand something that someone is saying, ask questions. Make sure you fully understand what's going on, what's being done, what procedures being done, what tests is being done, and why. And if you don't understand, then ask questions. And if you don't un- agree, there's always like that chain of command type process that patients and their families can use just like I can use myself if I don't agree with something in the hospital. So if you are having something done, if you go to triage and these tests and stuff are being done, or you want to, you want something done that's not being done. And you think you have a reason for that. And you're not getting somewhere with that specific nurse. You can say, Hey, can I talk to your charge nurse? That charge nurse can come in and their job is to kind of um, help bridge the gaps and answer any questions that maybe they weren't getting from their nurse. And any concerns that that patient has, that charge nurse should be able to uh, help give those answers to. And if they still aren't happy with that charge nurse, they can let them know that and they can keep moving up. You know, if they're in that place of, I want to speak to a physician, they can ask that. Okay, so let's say she was there and they gave her the morphine and the whatever that other shit's called. And she's like, Hey, I'm still contracting. And then they said, okay, you know what? We're going to check your cervix. And they did see that, you know, she was dilated or something. What then would be the appropriate steps to go through? There's probably a lot of things that would happen. She, I think she was 23 weeks and some days, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So at that point, she's so close to viability. If she, her body was uh, kicking into labor and her cervix was doing something, she should have been admitted. And um, there's probably a ton of medications they would have started to uh, slow that down and more testing done to figure out maybe why she's laboring. Because she had mentioned that one um, medicine, the one that, yeah, the one that stops. uh, labor. Right. I I think she said the nurse said 
she wasn't far enough along for that. Right. So, of course, they couldn't have even given that medication if they didn't know whether those contractions were doing anything to, like, change her cervix. Mm -hmm. So they needed to know that information before they could do anything. And if her cervix was changing, they probably would have gone to a much, much stronger medication like magnesium to help slow that process down. Turbidoline is something that you see when they're kind of like late preterm uh, and you would prefer that they stay pregnant a little bit longer, maybe like 35 weeks. Okay. But there was, so if they had checked her cervix and saw that there was a change, there was a lot of things that could have been different about this story. Yeah, that uh, a lot of things I feel like should have gone differently. Thank you guys for listening. I will see all of you next week. Everybody has a secret. <laughs>